Good morning, Fellowship family. We are kicking off a new series, and it's called Seeking Jesus in the Psalms. And I am really excited about this series. The Psalms are the ancient Israelite songbook. It was their hymnal. They would have songs for different occasions that they would sing as they were coming and as they were going. But we understand that no scripture can be fully understood until we, until we see how it points to Jesus. The Old Testament points us toward him. The New Testament tells us of his coming and his death and his resurrection and about the church that he has set up. And so what we are going to do over the course of the next nine weeks is we're going to look at nine individual psalms and how they point to Christ. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's going to be pretty easy to find him in Psalm 8. And so I invite you to turn with me there. And as you are turning with me to Psalm chapter 8, I want to talk to you for a minute about identity. My good friend, Jonathan Sublett, our lead pastor at the High Crest campus, he sent me an article, and the article talked about 26 million Americans who have submitted DNA so that it could be analyzed, so that we could better understand where we're from. Because we desperately want to understand where, we from, where we're from. We want to understand who we are. What is our makeup? How did we get to be us? In fact, he said in this article that there are now people who are doing this with their dogs. <laughs> Apparently there are some of you who are interested in knowing where your dog has come from. But we have these questions. Why am I the way that I am? Why do I look this way? Why do I talk this way? Why do I like coffee? Why is my hair this color? What is going on? And we want to understand who we are. We want to know where we're going, what our purpose is. And we have an unprecedented amount of voices speaking into our lives. We have 24-hour news cycles that are telling you what you should believe and how you should vote. We have Facebook and Instagram and all these other ones that I don't understand how to use that are telling us when stuff is liked and when it is not liked, that leave us comments about every single aspect of our lives, and it is no doubt that oftentimes we are confused as to who we are. And I believe Psalm 8 and seeing Jesus in Psalm 8 will help us better understand who we are. So Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise, and it begins with something called an inclusio. Now that's just a real fancy way of saying that it begins and it ends with the same thing. It's bookended. And so let's look at that bookend, beginning and end. It says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the point of the psalm. It's where it begins, it's where it ends, it's what we are to understand and this before us is now the point of our message. Jesus is worthy of all praise. Everything from this point on is going to tell us why he is worthy of praise. And so let's look at this verse. O Lord, our Lord. As you can see, it's pronounced the same way, but it looks different on your screen. It's because it's actually two different words. The first word, O Lord, is his name. It would be written as letters because they thought it was too holy to pronounce. And so it would be Y-H-W-H. We know that is Yahweh. We say, O oh Lord. He is a personal God. We are calling him by name, O oh Lord. And then our Lord. 
That second word is Adonai. It means that he is our master. He is our sovereign. He is in charge over us. And so this is the way it begins. O Lord, our Lord, our master, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. This is not about us. This is not about who we are or what we've done. It is all about you. And so we say that the point of this psalm is that Jesus is worthy of all praise. And so everything that is included in the middle now is going to help us understand why. Why is Jesus worthy of all praise? Well, the first thing that I want to help you see this morning through Psalm 8 is that Jesus is our maker. Jesus is our maker. He has made everything that is seen and unseen. And let's continue in Psalm 8, in that second half of verse 1. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. It's this really neat little small verse that just tells us that the glory of God is unapproachable. We cannot grasp it. We cannot touch it. It is not something that we can just totally understand. It is beyond the heavens. It is beyond us. So different is he. And that's why his name is majestic. Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then he says, out of the mouth of babies and infants. We've all heard that phrase, right? Out of the mouth of babes. We usually say it when our kids do something funny. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. We say it when they say something poignant or something really astute for a three-year-old to say. And we're like, can you believe that this came, came out of our three-year-old? Out of the mouth of babes. Well, it came from Psalms. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, it says that you have established strength. Now, that's not the word that we would expect. We don't look at babies and infants as being strong. We would say, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established cuteness. You have established weakness. That's who they are. They can't help it. They can't feed themselves. They can't take care of themselves. They are completely and utterly dependent on us. And yet the psalmist David says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. Why? Because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. Now I know when I say the word avenger, you expect the next two words to be end game. Okay? <laughs> but out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because we have foes that come against us. Think about the author of this psalm who was a shepherd boy named David and he stood in front of the giant Goliath. Was Goliath afraid of the five stones? No. Was he scared of the slingshot? Absolutely not. What should have made Goliath tremble in his boots? That David fought in the name of the Lord his God. For out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has established strength to silence the foe and the avenger. And when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that your strength is made perfect in my weakness, we understand this text even more. That I don't have to be strong, that we don't have to be strong because we have a God who is. He is so strong, he can ordain praise and strength from babies 
and infants. He continues in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... If you've ever gone out in one of those quiet nights and looked up at the stars, you're just in awe of God's handiwork. That he has set all of these things in place. And then this spring, my family had a chance to go with our extended family. We went down to Disney World. And we got to go to Magic Kingdom, right? The most magical place on earth. And we sat on the lawn and we looked up at Cinderella's castle. What a work of art. It's amazing that God gave someone that creativity to do that. I can't even build like a stick house. But yet on that house, at night, everyone waits. At nine o'clock, they have a show. And they flash up scenes from movies and characters that everyone recognizes. And it's done to music. And the music lights up this picture. It makes the sound and it comes alive. And the crescendos of the music are to fireworks. My friend told me that at one, any given time, there are 16 million lights that have been trained on the show to light it up so that everyone around can see it. And yet, it is a blip on the map under the handiwork of God's creation that lies above. Everything that happens in Orlando happens because God has given men creativity and it pales in comparison to the show that he puts on every single night for us. The heavens declare the glory and the majesty of our God, our maker. We get down to verse 5 and he says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. He has done this for men. He has given some of that dominion that we saw in verse 1 where he is our master and our sovereign. He has handed that over to us. He has created us to be able to do this. It says, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Everything that we have seen and everything that was made, God has made. And we say, Jesus is our maker. But Jesus' name isn't here in this text, so how are we sure that he was there Well, we're going to go on a little road trip. The first is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be up on the screen. And it says that he is the image of the invisible God. The he there is Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus, we see our heavenly Father. And that is why he told his disciples when they said, show us the Father. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus was present in creation and everything was created through him and by him and for him. And in verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only was he present in creation and the maker of all things, he is still present and at work in his creation, holding it all together. And then you have the words of the gospel and Apostle John in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And he says this In the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with the Father, He was with God, and He is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The writers of the New Testament wanted to be very clear to us that Jesus is our Maker. That He was present at creation. That He was present when God made even man and women. And so the first thing we take away from Psalm chapter 8 is that Jesus is our maker. But the second thing we're going to take away from Psalm chapter 8 is that Jesus is our model. Jesus is our model. He has shown us how to live. Now if you notice as we read through Psalm 8, we skipped one verse. We skipped verse 4. So I want to go back and pick that up now. And here's what the verse says. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? David's asking a rhetorical question. What is the big deal about us? What is humanity that you care for him? The son of man. Why are you mindful? You look at all the things that he has given, all the blessings and dominion he's given, and here you have a David who can be amazed that he asks a rhetorical question. Because the answer to this question is not found in the text. You could read the rest of Psalm chapter 8. He doesn't answer the question of why God is mindful of man. But I believe he knows. And so to answer this question clearly, I want you to look with me in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. To go back to the beginning of the very story that we're reading. And in Genesis chapter 1, our God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see the echo from Psalm 8? That here the creator has given dominion to those who he created. And then in Genesis 1.27 he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you hear it? Three times in two verses, why God is mindful of man. We are made in his image. We are the imago Dei. There is something special and unique and precious about us. What is it? We have been endowed with God-like glory. We were created to image that glory to the rest of the world who needed to see it. So that when you looked at me, you didn't see how we were different. You see the glory of God in me. And when I look at you, I see the glory of God in you because that's what we were created to do. We were created to see the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of our creator in each other. Which means that every single one of us have been given dignity and worth and value. That you were made to look like the God who made you. You were made in his image. And no matter how tall you are or how short you are, no matter how fast you are or slow you are, no matter where you got up this morning or where you're going to go to bed tonight, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your hair looks like, no matter the color of your skin. 
You were made in the image of God to reflect him in a special and unique way, male and female. But Genesis 3 happens not too long after Genesis 1. And in Genesis 3, that image of God that is so beautiful, so wondrous, is defaced. Adam and Eve, they fall dead in a garden. They go their own way and they rebel against God and sin and death and destruction enter the world. And the evil one is allowed to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. And now that image of God is not seen quite as clearly. When you look at me, you don't see the image of God. What you look at me and see, you see the things you don't like. You see our differences. You see the things that want to divide us and keep us apart. When I look at you, I see the same thing. And so something has to change about this reality. And I hear a different question being asked in Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you'd be mindful of him? What is the son of man that you would care for for him? Have you seen us? Have you seen the way we talk to one another? Have you seen the way we treat one another? Have you seen the way we hate one another? What is this creation that you would think so highly of him that you would give him all of these things? And from Genesis 3 on, we get the answer to that question. And so I invite you to turn with me for the last time to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to fully answer this question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? The book of Hebrews is written to a people who are trying to decide who this Jesus is. And so for the entirety of the book, the author is saying Jesus is greater. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He is greater than Melchizedek. He is greater than the sacrificial system. He is greater than the priestly system. He is the one that you need. And in Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 5, it starts, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. This majesty, this thing that he created, it's not for them. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come for which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Somewhere. Where? Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Here's that question again. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you would care for him? Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We do not see the world as it should be. We do not see humanity as it should be. What is going on But, that word but in the English language is so strong. It changes direction. We do not see everything the way it's supposed to be, but we see him. Things aren't the way that we go, but we have him, Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. What does that mean, that Jesus was made lower than the angels? It means that Jesus stepped out of heaven. 
that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he came down and humbled himself, emptied himself, and took on human likeness. He took on the form of a servant. He was made lower for the angels for a little while, namely Jesus, and he is crowned with glory and honor. You see up in verse 7, it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor. We believe that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. But what does that mean, that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He has been given glory and honor because he stepped out, stepped in, stepped down, and took on our flesh. And he died in our place, showing us how to live. We skip down to verse 14. And it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. From Genesis chapter 3, we have been subject to lifelong slavery. We have been empowered by sin and by death. We have been in control of the evil one and enslaved to the very things that want to take our lives. And Jesus said, I am going to come down and I thought so much of man that I became a man. And by my death and my resurrection and my life, I have set you free. I am at work restoring that image of God in you. I am the one who gives you life. I am the one who gives you dignity and value. For surely it was not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's you and me. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. How did Jesus come into this world? He came into this world as a baby boy, born in a stable. And you think back to the words of Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Out of the baby that came to this world that took on human likeness, God has brought strength to silence the foe and the avenger. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's me. And that's you. And we have a God who has shown us how to do this. We have a God who has stepped down and shown us how to live, who has taken on my suffering and my punishment and my pain for my sin. And he has willingly extended me eternal life that I might live with him. And because he is our maker and because he is our model, he is worthy of all praise. And so what is our response to this God? I could only think of one word. Our response to this God is humility. And there are two ways I want to look at humility this morning. And the first way is this. I am who he says I am. 
Now, we sing that song. It comes off of our tongue really nicely and really easily. It's catchy. I'm not going to torture you by singing it for you this morning. It's easy to sing. It's harder to believe. I am who he says I am. I am not who my spouse says that I am. I am not who my friends say that I am. I am not what Facebook or Instagram say that I am. I am not what my coworkers or job performance say that I am. I am who you say I am. And you are who he says you are. When I was in seminary, I thought I had my career path chosen for me. I was going to go into academia. I wanted to be a professor. And then I learned that I am not nearly smart enough to do that. I don't read fast enough. I don't retain enough information. So I had to have plan B. And plan B was going to be I was going to find a job where I could study all week and then teach because I thought that the world was in desperate need of like 24-year-olds to listen to. And when that role really didn't exist, I went to plan C. And I loved plan C. Plan C was getting to work with children. And working with children is what brought me to Fellowship Bible Church And when I came and had a full-time job, I really thought that ministry was going to be hermeneutics and theology and talking about God and just doing all this all the time. And then I learned that ministry really sometimes can be summed up in two words. Middle management. You see, we have these great things that we want to accomplish. We have these programs that we need to run. And we have these awesome volunteers. And some of the greatest joys of my life has been fighting with these volunteers, arm in arm, charging the gates of hell for the souls of these children. But these volunteers are also people. And I am also a person. And sometimes you make decisions and people don't like the decisions that you make. And sometimes you head in a direction and people don't like the direction that you're walking in. And sometimes you're not going to believe this, but they look at you and they say unkind things. And sometimes they don't want to be involved anymore. And sometimes they send you that email or that phone call on the way out and you are tempted to believe, I am who they say I am. And I wish I could tell you that I didn't believe any of it. I wish I could tell you in my darkest times that I truly believe that I am only who the Lord says that I am. But man, that's hard. And then after a while of, you know, leading volunteers, and we had some great volunteers, we have some great volunteers, they took me from doing that, and now you're going to manage staff. And this is going to be so much easier because staff are perfect. (laughs) No, we're just people too. And I have served on some of the greatest staff environments here. We've had awesome, awesome teams. But even in the midst of awesome team, we are just still people. And sometimes directions and decisions get made. Sometimes you head down a path and not everyone is on board with that path. Sometimes not everyone is enamored with your leadership. Sometimes not everyone is enamored with the way you do things. And you're not going to believe this either. Even staff say not nice things sometimes. And sometimes there's conflict that you have to work through. And I wish in those moments of darkness that I believe, no, I am who he says I am instead of who they say I am. 
And in the midst of one of my darkest leadership seasons here, I got a really ironic assignment from God. He was having a little fun with me. I got to preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul's doing something really kind of interesting in 1 Corinthians 4. And years later, I read another interpretation of it. And it was done much better than I ever could have done. It was written by Timothy Keller, and it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I wish I read it a lot earlier. But this is my paraphrase of what's going on in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 4. You have Paul who is writing to the Corinthian church and he's not exactly happy with everything going on in the Corinthian church and they're not exactly happy with everything that Paul is doing. There's some tension there. And he looks at the Corinthian people through this letter and he says, hey, I need to tell you something. I don't care what you think. Really? Paul, that's kind of strong. I don't care what you think. And then he goes, and I'm not even done. Not, even, not only do I not care what you think, I don't even care what I think. Because it is not what you think matters. It is not what I think matters. The only thing that matters about me is what Jesus thinks of me. You are not who you are on your worst day or your best day. You are not the words of your critics or your fans. You are defined by the Son of the living God. And what does he think about you? No matter where you sit today, he says, someone, you are someone who is made in my image. You are someone who I loved enough to come down out of heaven and walk as a human among you, and I gave my life so that you can live. You are my beloved. You are my brother and sister. You are a child of God. And in your deepest, darkest moments, in all of those insecurities that you have, you have a truth that you can hold on to. That you are not your likes or non-likes on Facebook. You are not these things in your life, these voices that we invite in. We can block those out because we are who he says we are. And this is awesome. We don't have to think too little of ourselves anymore. We don't have to think too much of ourselves anymore. We can think of us just as he does. And then it gets even better. Our second response of humility is if we truly understand who we are before him, that we have the opportunity to treat other people as more significant than ourselves. Right? We don't have to. We get to. Because we understand that I am made in the image of God and that you are in the image of God and you are for someone who Christ died. And if the Bible says that greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend, that means that you are loved with the greatest love that we know. And if you were made to look like him and image him and reflect him, then it is my joy and honor to get to come alongside and treat you better than the way I would even want to treat myself. It's not a have to. It's not a law. It's a joy. Because we finally have a right understanding of ourselves. We are who he says we are. And we get to love the other people that he loves, just like he loves us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the words recorded by David in the psalm. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Father, you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son to die in our place, to give us freedom and redemption from sin. And Father, you have set us free from slavery. You have set us free to go and to be your people and to be your imagers, showing you off throughout this world. And Father, I pray that as we do that, we will love other people the way you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.